I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Diajabosa. Carl is off. Today, more M&A, maybe bigger M&A in software. App Lovin goes Lovin with a public deal for Unity, throwing a wrench in Unity's plan to buy iron source, perhaps. Sharp moves in the stocks and what it means for the ecosystems and tech valuations broadly. Plus, speaking of valuations, Micron warns of weakness ahead. More demand problems just today after NVIDIA warned revenue would fall short of estimates. What that says about the current environment. And then volatility returns to the meme trade. Breakdown of names with high short interest and flying stock prices, including the CEO of 23andMe on the heels of those results. Steve. Well, John, we are going to start with the deal of the day. It is right up our tech check alley. AppLovin announcing a proposal to merge with Unity in an all-stock deal valuing Unity at $20 billion or nearly 59 bucks a share. John Fort, I was out yesterday, but I was watching. You said AppLovin might be in the market for consolidation. Have a listen. The type of company I've got my eye on, AppLovin, it's up more than 10% today, $15 billion market cap, roughly. It's down about 57% year to date. And you might not tend to think of this as a fintech play, but in a way it is because these app ecosystems and how smaller businesses and developers balance between advertising and you know, discovery appearing in app stores, those are financial issues. And um, perhaps investors can think more broadly about the... Uh, the, the types of companies that are available out there. I mean, it's also worth noting Iron Source uh, is looking to be taken out by Unity with some help uh, from, what was it? Um, uh, it's slipping my mind, but private equity is helping out there too. Silver Lake. Yeah, the lesson there, watch Tech Check, right, John? <laughs> Av Lovin projecting a run rate revenue of more than $7 billion by the end of 2024. If this goes through, looking to give app developers access to Unity's 3D design tools. Unity's John Riccatello would take over as CEO of the combined company. That is all proposed, John. This is essentially gaming meets monetization, ad network, and ad mediator, except, and you did mention this also yesterday, there's already a deal trying to take place between Unity and Iron Source, you could actually argue here that AppLovin had no choice. The threat of a Unity Iron Source combo actually threatens their business, right? If you have this one flywheel, why would customers necessarily use AppLovin anymore when they could get all of that from one company, a combined Unity Iron Source? I don't know about no choice. There are other combinations that could be made here. I think you know, the way I'm thinking about this structurally, what's being proposed, it's kind of like what Adobe did a decade plus ago mm -hmm. when they went from mainly a focus on content creation tools for uh, you know desktop publishing and eventually the web branching into digital marketing with the purchase of Omniture. And now what they've got, similar to what I was saying yesterday, is actually sort of a fintech play. Now they've got insight into what's happening with e-commerce and inflation and that data serves as a financial tool potentially for customers. And I think that's what's possible to build if you put together Unity and hey, either Iron Source or app loving that combination for the app-driven economy, which yeah. today is primarily mobile, but tomorrow could be what a lot of people are calling the metaverse, the narrative I, yeah. that I hate, but it's there, you it's said real. It. Well, okay, but what happens to an app loving if this doesn't happen, if Unity and Iron Source do go through? You take a look at all these three companies have been hit by sort of the sell-off and growth stocks, but app loving less than others, and this is what you were pointing to, John, the fundamentals are actually pretty good. What was it, 90% plus growth? profitability as well. 
it's kind of an expensive acquisition target. Who would be able to do that deal without a certain amount of dilution? Well, there are a number of companies. Microsoft's busy right now, but there are a number yeah. of companies in the digital creation space that could look at um, the possibility of more data, more marketing tools and creation as being important here. Um, it, it, does it force Adobe's hand, I think, is a real question, because hmm. uh, this is a space when you talk about 3D design, you talk about immersive environments, uh, Adobe has been organically moving into that, but will they make a bolder uh, M&A type move into the space? Eventually, they probably would. I don't know if this is the type Are of move they want Are you saying Unity? Unity might make sense for an Adobe? Well, no, I was saying that App Lovin might make sense for mm -hmm. an Adobe because Adobe's already still stronger when it comes to content creation tools across the board. But if they want to move more data-centric into a space, that sort of a move, whether it's app loving or something else, could potentially make sense for a larger player like that, D. And for well, more on the mechanics of this potential deal, let's keep talking about it with our David Faber. David, uh, you've been talking about this this morning as well. I was talking about it more from the strategic you know, product yep. side, but we don't see this type of proposal every day. No, uh, it was interesting listening to you talk about it from the perhaps more important side in terms of whether it fundamentally makes sense, John. But from uh, the M&A perspective, it's a tough one. Uh, you're talking about an unsolicited all-stock offer from one company for another that, as of course you pointed out, is already in a deal to acquire another company. Uh, they want to exchange stock that is not yet listed as part of the consideration. They're C shares. Uh, they also are going to be converting B shares to uh, A shares. The B shares have a 20 to 1 vote, but they're going to get rid of that. Um, all of which is to say it's somewhat complex, not to mention that Unity shareholders would end up owning more of the combined company's stock than would AppLovin, although less of the vote. And there you see it, right? We get 55% of the economics, but 49% of the vote. They are saying, though, hey, your CEO can run it and they are willing to uh, have board representation be uh, a more uh, favorable towards unity, but a key part of the, of the overall pitch is as well that, yeah, don't buy Iron Source. That was an interesting deal in and of itself, of course. Uh, Sequoia and Silver Lake both in support there uh, of what was that Tom Bravo uh, SPAC that decided to sell out to unity. Um, you know, we don't see this kind of thing very often on paper. It's not clear that it's got a great chance. John, it's not clear what Unity's perspective is going to be here. We got some sense in the background to the Iron Source deal that there had been some conversations, but I have not been able to sort of fill in any blanks there in terms of whether they were with AppLovin as we assume they were mm -hmm. and whether or not they came to any sort of point where they basically said, no, thank you. You could assume that was the case and then Perhaps AppLovin said, well, we're going to give this a shot and put an offer on paper here. But, you know, these kinds of offers, uh, John and Georgia, don't often come to fruition. Perhaps Unity will be interested. Sequoia and Silver Lake will be key voices here. By the way, I should point out KKR on the other side owns 20 percent of AppLovin. Ah, yes. And this speaks to the environment we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks where private equity has been hunting around in the sub 20 billion, sub 15 billion dollar market cap, a lot of these stocks that have taken, I mean, a haircut isn't, isn't drastic enough to, to talk about the, the sort of repricing 
that's gone on here, the iron source uh, deal, potential deal, the, there was private money in there, potentially it seems making it easier, making it more palatable. If you were to go yes. the app loving route, the execution would be really tough because these are two companies that are roughly the same market cap. You've got bigger workforces, you've got more employee comp uh, concerns to deal with. Does it distract you? Yeah, all good questions, John, and all reasons why you might expect that Unity at this point has said nothing more than we've received the offer and we're going to consider it. But we'll have to pay close attention here. Uh, it, it's rare indeed that they would say, okay, sure, you know, we'll take it. That well, would seem to be an unlikely uh, outcome. By the way, John uh, and Deirdre, important to point out, AppLovin also warned, uh, you know, they, they reduced their, um, their total revenue guidance for the full year this morning as mm -hmm. well. So right. we kind of didn't, that kind of got lost in all this also. <laughs> Well, I guess you can see it in the share price as well. But actually, talking of share price, David, um, Unity was up a lot more. It's kind of hovering around the flat line now. What kind of a position does that put its shareholders in to either push for this deal or not? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, obviously, you'd want, if you're app loving, you'd want to see the market react very positively. Yeah. The prospect of this combination send your stock higher. That has not been the case. And given that's the consideration being offered here, it's bringing Unity down well below what was the 58 plus dollars that they said this was worth. Um, you know, it, it doesn't put a lot of pressure on Unity shareholders, mm -hmm. I guess, is the best way to put it. Steve. Yeah. I guess we're going to dig into on which may be the better deal, Iron Source or Unity. And with that, let's actually bring in CNBC contributor Low Tony, founding manager, capital partner at Plexo Capital. Lo, it is great to see you. Good morning to you. Um, let's start right there. What do you think is the better deal for investors? Is it Iron Source or is it AppLovin? What is Unity deciding, their shareholders deciding between right now? Yeah, look. I think it's important to provide a little bit of context for why these deals are even in play. When we think about what's happening with the, the gaming space in general, we've seen the mobile usage of games surpass the traditional council-based and PC-based gaming. And so with a market that's expected to be in excess of $200 billion this year, about 60% of that is mobile gaming. And that's largely driven by the the casual gamer right so when we think about like games like farmville from zynga i mean that kind of really kicked off casual gaming and so what the developers and publishers are looking at is a mixed shift of revenues so historically most of the revenues come from a very small percentage of the users it can be as small as one percent of mobile gaming users that are making in-app purchases and so the the shift happens when a new revenue stream has an opportunity to emerge, and that's advertising, much more broadly based across a wider user base. But the key is for both in-app purchases and advertising is to have a really engaging game to keep mm -hmm. people on the platform, both for that small percentage to make in-app purchases, as well as for that larger base to see ads. And the combination of these two makes a lot of sense, whether it's, you know, Iron Source or, or whether it's going to be app loving, mm -hmm. you know, both of those platforms offer the ability to monetize app loving, um, you know, I think does in your words, Idris, see this as a threat enough to actually push them forward because Developers could look at this as a one-stop shop. I can create engaging games using the Unity engine, and then I can layer on top the ability to have monetization. Yeah. And I get a better feedback loop if both of those are together, because I can understand what 
tactics that I'm using to develop the games to make them engaging is translating into the revenue. Mm -hmm. Lo, another reason we're talking about monetization and consolidation uh, has to do with Apple just completely upending and changing um, the advertising market on their devices um, over the last year or so. So, you know, why do these companies have to do this now? Give us that backdrop. And also, where else could we see this happen? And kind of what I was talking to with John as well, who are we know who's at play, but who do you think could actually be doing the acquiring other than sort of Unity App Levin? Could a Google get involved? Could a Microsoft, even though it's already looking at another massive target? Yeah, you know, Microsoft is an interesting one, you know, just kind of thinking about the actual games that they'll have once the, if the Activision Blizzard deal goes through, and then already having some good DNA with the Xbox and success there. So this this could be an interesting point for you know, Microsoft to consider all those John points out, you know, they're pretty busy as it is. And, you know, I think anything in addition would raise the eyebrows of the regulators to understand, is this going to be anti-competitive? But yes, I believe all of the advertising players could actually have a look at this. As John points out, you know, thinking about where the other creator aspects are and what tools they're using. So Adobe could even be an interesting play. But look, what we do know is that a lot of the learnings from gaming translate very well into other applications. And so I think we could see a much broader suite of services that could plug in gaming as one aspect and really advertising is the core. So I think, yes, those players that are deep in the advertising space could actually look at this and at least keep track of it to see whether or not it might make sense. And yeah, look, I mean, at the end of the day, these moves by Apple to be able to really focus in on privacy really limits the amount of data. So if there's an easier way to kind of bake in the analytics and monetization into the core game itself, that's going to be helpful. And Lo, I think another piece of this I'd love your take on is really the fintech piece. And we don't tend to talk about gaming and fintech together, about uh, digital goods and digital services and fintech together, unless we're either talking about crypto or you know the metaverse, this newfangled stuff. But really, I think we don't spend enough time talking about B2B fintech. And for a good segment of the market that's dealing in digital ecosystems, digital goods, gaming being a part of that, uh, what AppLovin and IronSource are dealing in is fintech. How discoverable is your app? Not only placing ads inside your app, but placing ads on behalf of your app to get it discovered in other places, right? And so that's something that as Facebook is trying to construct this digital ecosystem so it's not controlled by Apple and Google's whims, as others are trying to build this out, it's going to be an important ecosystem to build out. And in part, these are assets that need to come together in a way to enable that. Yeah, John, that was a really interesting insight. I, you know, I heard that on the replay, and I think that's actually spot on, because if we think about what these ecosystems are doing in separate instances at the moment, but the... ...for um, app-loving, it's an ecosystem that's a platform for developers to be able to monitor. Yes, in that sense, there are a lot of aspects of fintech when we think about the ability to monetize 
to manage one's business. And then you can obviously see the ability to kind of expand out into other areas as well. I mean, maybe there's an opportunity for a buy now, pay later financing <laughs> of virtual goods. I was wondering like, that. Does that put the fintech more? players in play? Uh, clearly, this deal has so many ramifications, right? We talked, we discussed it in light of so many different industries. It'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. Lotoni, as always, great to have your insights. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Yeah, one deal or the other. We'll see. After the break, Micron, the latest chip maker to warn of a slowdown in demand. Tech Check is just getting started. shares of Snap, uh, they are lower in today's session. And according to The Verge, uh, Snap is in the early stages of planning for layoffs. The cuts coming after the company missed estimates and the latest results, sending shares plunging. You might remember that. It was a big plunge. However, it is still unclear how many of their more than 6,000 employees will ultimately be let go. Of course, this is a company that is waging a war on many fronts amid that broader slowdown in digital ad spending. The stock hitting near all-time lows this year, down 80% in 2022. And John has not seen the kind of rebound that some other tech names have seen in the last few weeks. Has not, has not. Um, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here with these macro headwinds. Um, speaking of, uh, President Biden signing the CHIPS Act into law less than an hour ago. But what does it mean for chip manufacturers? Bank of America analyst Vivek Arya joins us now to discuss, Vivek, uh, some of the latest headlines have to do with Micron and this inventory correction that we see happening in the chips. We heard, we saw the big impact on Intel's quarter, but then some, some variations in the impact on NVIDIA, now on Micron. How clear is it how quickly the chip makers uh, will be able to work through this, this correction and how much of an inventory uh, impact we can expect two or three quarters out? Uh, thank you, John. So in the last decade, uh, the demand for semiconductors has more than doubled, even though every three to four years we have had a correction. And usually these uh, cyclical corrections in, in this kind of long-term secular trend, they tend to be rolling in nature. You start with consumer, then you get into enterprise, then you get into data center, and then you finally finish with auto industrial. And through that process, uh, sell-side estimates get adjusted uh, very uh, aggressively. And then even though the end sales uh, can decline, the stocks can continue to do well. So to answer your question, I think we are in the middle of that period of uh, inventory correction, of estimate adjustments. But by September or October, we think this process will be done. So we are actually very positive on semiconductor stocks heading into uh, the next year. But we are still in the middle of that rolling correction that started with the consumer. And we saw that with Micron, with Intel, with some of the smartphone makers. We saw it with NVIDIA, with uh, consumer graphics. We are hearing about uh, some of that weakness spilling into enterprise and data center, perhaps even into auto and industrial. But we think this is what happens every three to four years. It should uh, play itself out by September, October. And I think we are actually very bullish uh, on semiconductor stocks heading into the next year. OK, so let's talk about the impact of the CHIPS Act. It seems to me like it's nothing near term. We're talking two, three, four semiconductor cycles out. And is it more on perhaps leading edge process technology or more general process technology? 
maybe not to, to have an impact on, on overall global pricing uh, and supply, but supply of, of those critical chips? Yeah, so uh, you're absolutely right, John, that it doesn't, you know, the, the end demand for semiconductors is not really going to be impacted by whether we make it in the U.S. or we make it in China or Europe or Japan or, or Korea. It doesn't change that end demand. It's obviously very uh, good to have a more domestic uh, production of uh, semiconductors in the U.S. and Europe. I'm, I'm all for that. But the other two goals of the CHIPS Act, which are to do with reducing the reliance on Taiwan, um, I, I think that it is too early to make that uh, claim because there is no manufacturing entity in the U.S. that has manufacturing technology that is the same as TSMC. And TSMC itself is not willing to put its most leading edge technology in the U.S. So I don't think the CHIPS Act uh, in any near term will be able to reduce our reliance on Taiwan. And then the third aspect of the CHIPS Act, which is to help on the shortage side in auto semiconductors, I think that's also uh, is more uh, process. It's going to take place over the next three to four uh, quarters. So my uh, um, view on the CHIPS Act is that, yes, it is an incremental positive. It brings more high-tech uh, you know, manufacturing to the U.S., but I don't think it's a silver bullet in terms of yeah. reducing our reliance on, on Taiwan anytime soon. I think, I think, Vivek, you kind of hit the nail on the head, especially what some of the skeptics are looking at is that in the short term, it's unlikely, but in the long term, it may also be unlikely. And there are some questions over whether this money is actually spent in the right place to onshore manufacturing. Is there an argument to be made that the U.S. should be friendshoring instead, putting money into places like South Korea and Japan that may have a better chance of doing this, where the labor issues aren't as great as they are here in the U.S.? Right. No, Deidre, I think that, that that's a good point. Uh, but, you know, it, this is the first step. It's an important um, step. It might not take us all the way over there. But, you know, each of these steps gradually makes uh, a dent. Um, you know, it's, it's more a case of, number one, uh, of course, funding is important. But number two, IP, intellectual property, is also important. So along with um, putting more money into place, we also have to find a way to encourage companies such as TSMC, such as Samsung, to put more of their leading edge production in the U.S. Because Intel today, at least, does not seem to have uh, what it takes uh, to match those uh, companies. And Intel's business model does not really enable it to be a foundry of choice to many companies who are today competing against uh, Intel. Um, so I do think it's, the CHIPS Act is an incremental positive, but by no means is it a silver bullet um, right? that I think sometimes it's, it's being projected to be. Yeah, and Intel certainly hopes that uh, we're saying something different about their capabilities two or three years from now, but a lot to prove between now and then. Vivek, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Vivek Arya. Sure is. And after the break, a stock caught in the meme trade. The wrong side of it today, though. We're going to look at the trend and an interview with the CEO of 23andMe. Stay with us. Good morning. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Bertha Coombs. Here's, uh, the, here are the headlines of this hour. One of the greatest players in the history of tennis says today she is evolving away from the sport she loves. In an Instagram post highlighting a Vogue cover article, Serena Williams doesn't use the word retirement, but says, quote, 
There comes a time in life when you have to decide to move in a different direction. She plans to focus on her family and business interests. Williams is scheduled to play in the U.S. Open later this month, and it appears that will be her last tournament. Again, quoting, the countdown has begun. I'm going to relish these next few weeks, aren't we all? Meantime, on NBC's Today this morning, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defended her visit to Taiwan that has prompted Chinese military maneuvers in the area. We cannot allow the Chinese government to isolate Taiwan. They may say to them, you can't go to the World Health Organization, but they're not going to say who can go to Taiwan. And yes, it was worth it. And what the Chinese are doing is what they usually do. And NBC News reporting Mike Pompeo, President Trump's Secretary of State, as the former president tried to avoid leaving office, will meet remotely today with the House's January 6th committee. Deirdre, I, I just can't imagine tennis without Serena. I'm so focused on that Vogue cover, and I think there was one, I don't know if it was Photoshop, with her daughter holding the end of it. No. I don't know if that was real or not, but it was a beautiful picture. Bertha, really? thank you. We want to turn now to the meme trade. Uh, volatility returning to names like Bed Bath & Beyond, AMC, GameStop over the past week. Dom Shu is taking a look at what is driving these moves. Dom, a lot of high short interest. Things haven't changed all that much from a few years ago, but they're coming from a much lower base. The more things change, the more they stay yeah. the same, right? So high short interest, and you couple it with a lot of internet chatter, a lot of mentions on the Wall Street Bets forum, on places like Reddit, and you get some of that volatility mix that we've seen. If you take a look at GameStop, AMC Entertainment, and Bed Bath & Beyond, GameStop, of course, what many call the OG, the original one, right? The original of those meme stocks is the one that's really outperforming up about 8% so far this year-to-date period. AMC is still down 17% and Bed Bath & Beyond, despite the massive moves that we've seen over the last couple of weeks here, is still off about a third of its value over that time period. But it's this volatility here that we're focused a little bit more on because if you look at that short interest, this is the way it's playing out right now. Some of these names, especially the original meme stocks, have seen quite a bit of short interest in their shares. If you take a look at the shares that they have short or bet against it versus the number that they have of shares outstanding, GameStop, roughly 20% of its shares outstanding is held short, bet against, right? About 19% for AMC Entertainment and a whopping 36% for Bed Bath & Beyond. So among these three, Bed Bath & Beyond could have the most volatility if people do decide to push this around with regard to possibly covering shorts and whatnot. But if you take a look at the Russell 2000 index, where many of these stocks that have high short interest live, that's where you start to see even perhaps more short interest that could drive some of the action there. Other names besides some of these meme stocks that have seen some interest there are the ones that you've known about or that we've talked about quite a bit over the time in, in period. Take a look at EVgo on the alternative energy side of things, Beyond Meat and Fisker. Each of these stocks is in the Russell 2000 index, and each of them has roughly 34 to 36 percent of their shares outstanding held short, so bet against it. So these could be some of the more volatile ones as well. And John, I'll end you with this one. The Russell 2000 stock with the highest amount of short interest is none other than MicroStrategy, the stock that many have seen as a proxy for Bitcoin because it holds so much of it on its balance sheet. Roughly 39%, John, of its shares outstanding are short interest there. So keep an eye on MicroStrategy alongside the Bitcoin catalyst. It could have that short interest catalyst as well. I'll send things back over to you. Wow. Dangerous positions. Uh, Dom, thank you. Speaking of roller coaster weeks, take a look at shares of 23andMe. 
Investors piled into the stock ahead of results. Shares were up 45% in a few days. But then the genetics research company posted a wider-than-expected net loss, sending shares lower this morning. 23andMe is up 30% this month, but has lost roughly two-thirds of its value since going public via a Richard Branson-backed SPAC last summer. Joining us now, 23andMe co-founder and CEO, Ann Wojcicki. Uh, Ann, welcome. Um, I want to start off with the impact of this economy on your business. Help me understand, as consumers potentially have less to spend on discretionary things, what's the mm -hmm. impact there? And then uh, you did also call out inflation's impact on some of the company's costs. For sure. I think a couple of things. There's, there's no doubt you know, consumers are tightening their wallet, that they are definitely being conservative about, you know, how they want to, you know, think about spending. At the same time, one thing that we did see during COVID, and I do think that trend continues, is that people are very, um, e even more mindful of their health. And you definitely start to see that more and more as people are thinking about how they can be proactive about managing their health, how they can stay healthy longer. So one of the key things that genetics does for an individual is it helps you understand your risks and really helps you have a, you know, be healthier longer and understand if you do have a condition, how can you better optimize that? So we definitely do see um, increases in costs. You know, you see that with labor costs. We see that um, we have not seen a huge amount through suppliers, but we definitely see that with labor. My sense, and correct me where I'm wrong here, is that there is a certain population of people that are into the quantified self, right? The people who are wearing their Apple Watches and checking this and that metric every day and perhaps who proactively signed up to 23andMe and are uh, participating in those sorts of studies. But to reach the mass market, do you need more partnerships with healthcare providers, with doctors who are walking people through the, the genetic reports and the implications and helping them to understand it? And how much of that is part of your strategy? I think... Look, I think that the trends, and, and again, if you look at the data, more and more there is a consumer element of healthcare. And people are really, um, it's not, it's more about a partnership between things that you have to do on your own and things that you get from your physician. So more and more people are stepping up. And I would disagree strongly, like that 23andMe is just on the quantified self-individuals. This is absolutely a product that will, um, you know, that does appeal to the masses and will appeal more and more to the masses as genetics becomes a core part of healthcare. So one of the key things we did last quarter is we hired two individuals who are um, incredible leaders in the genomic medicine space. And what we see is this opportunity to integrate genetic information in all aspects of primary care. And I think one of the big disconnects here is that there's all, you know, we see personalization in the entire economy, but you don't have that largely in healthcare. You know, you look at your prevention recommendations. We're all told to get a colonoscopy at the same time. We're all told to get mammograms at the same time. But there's a whole opportunity for us to actually start to personalize that. And that is exactly what 23andMe is going to be leading. And we're developing that expertise in genomic medicine that will be applicable to all aspects of healthcare. That is a compelling case, and it's Deirdre, by the way. Um, I wanted to ask you a broader question in the healthcare space, especially among competition. Um, with Amazon's acquisition or planned announced acquisition of First Medical, what kind of play player do you think that they will be in the space? And you guys rely so heavily on Amazon, things like Prime Day, to sell your kits. Do you have any worry that Amazon now knows who's buying your kits, who your customer is, and that they could eventually compete with you? I'm, I'm thrilled to see more individuals getting into healthcare in a serious way. And if you think about it, healthcare is a $4 trillion industry that everyone agrees is relatively dysfunctional. 
No one raises their hand and says, I love the experience. So if Amazon's coming in and they can provide care in a new way that is going to really be more efficient and better for individuals, that's great. But going, going back to what I just said, 23andMe is going to be the genomic medicine experts here. So we will be able to partner with all those various groups to say, we can help you really understand how to apply genetic information to those individuals to see whether or not there's an application and whether or not that they can be better managed with their genetic data. All right. We will leave it there. Ann Wojcicki, the CEO of 23andMe. Thank you. Thanks. You can hear more from Ann at this year's Disruptor 50 Summit on October 20th. Register today by scanning the code right there on your screen, or you can visit cnbcevents.com if you are not able to get your smartphone camera out fast <laughs> enough. Dave. You got to be quick. You got to be quick. As we had to break, look at the intraday case for the NASDAQ. Um, it is lower by more than 1%. Up next, the tech sector, one fund manager is buying on dips like this. Stay with us. The Nasdaq is underperforming today, but it is up more than 7% over the past month, making it an outperformer in that time frame. So have we seen the lows of this bear market? Our next guest thinks so, saying he's telling clients to buy the dips, not sell the rips. Bullish on software and semis within tech. Joining us now, Evercore ISI, head of technical analysis, Rich Ross. Rich, uh, good morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, are you too late for this, I wonder? Semis and software, the two ETFs that you like, they've already bounced 18 and 21% from their 52-week lows. Yeah, look, I think that's a very fair question, one clearly I've gotten from just about every one of my clients here, uh, which is only natural after the strong surge off the lows. But I think there's two setups here, Deirdre, and the structural setup is still quite compelling. When you look in the short term, obviously, we talked about the surge off the lows, which has left us overbought into resistance in this period of weak seasonality in a downtrend with CPI tomorrow. I mean, how could you possibly buy stocks? Well, I'll tell you how you buy them. You zoom out and you look at the weekly chart. You look at a long term chart. And this is exactly where you have been paid to back up the truck on technology at every major market low since the financial crisis. And by that, I mean those longer term weekly moving averages that have defined the post-financial crisis bull market. In addition, you have a compelling setup from the top-down macro vis-a-vis peaks in gasoline, peaks in crude oil, and bottoms in high-yield credit. So we have tops in the top-down, which has created this bear market, and you have bottoms from the bottom up in stocks, the top 12 years of support with MACD buy signals for the first time in the bear market. So yes, short-term, it's later than we would have liked. There's always room for improvement at these major market turning points. But again, there is plenty of upside. And the three most dangerous words in this business are, I missed it. You have not missed it. Well, we talked to a lot of people, too, that also argue that this is a bear market rally. And when we saw the dot-com bubble burst, um, there were many of those. What makes you so confident? You said that energy has peaked. What makes you confident of that? And also that valuations have settled. Yeah, look, there's a lot to unpack here. First, I'll start with the last, which is valuation, which really means very, very little to nothing to the technician. But I would yeah. say this. Admittedly, you can still make the case that this is a bear market rally. But, you know, the risk here is to the upside from the standpoint of not being there when the market goes up rather than being there if it goes down again. Keep in mind where sentiment and positioning are. They border on draconian, myself included, until just last week. I'm not trying to pretend like I've been a big bull here. Um, in fact, been quite bearish until this last turn here on Thursday. Uh, but what I'm telling you is that 
who's left to sell? And I don't mean to jinx this burgeoning bull off the bottom here, but only to suggest that we know that positioning is at its lowest levels in quite some time. We know that sentiment as is at its lowest levels in quite some time. The narrative of the Fed has to keep going. I mean, everybody, including myself until just recently, can tell the same tale of woe. And that's the type of backdrop from a sentiment and positioning standpoint that occurs at major market lows when you're sitting there on that same structural support that has defined this bull market and is likely to do so again with this new cyclical bull phase. But what about demand weakening? I mean, I, I get it, all the things that you're saying and you know the, the technicals and we're seeing this impact of, of the bounce off the lows and M&A activity and yet we've got this inventory overhang in chips. We've got the Fed speak from last week, uh, you know, so many coming out and saying, look, we, we don't see ourselves actually having to lower interest rates in 2023 like the bond market is betting. Uh, as a matter of fact, we see the, the need to hike and stay up there for longer to make sure inflation is under control. And we got that strong jobs report. So, I mean, isn't demand and weakening demand potentially uh, the, the thing that upends your new thesis? Yeah, look, John, these are all fantastic points, and I, and I can't stand in the face of any of them only to suggest this, that prices turn before the headlines. It's not all rainbows and unicorns out there by any stretch. We know that, that significant risks remain. What I'm telling you is that when it is rainbows and unicorns, when no significant risks remain, it is going to be too late. Now, it's already too late for some when you think about this rally off of the bottom, but what I'm telling you is you look at some of these larger mega cap stocks like a Meta, for example, which is a chart only a technician could love, down 60% off the highs, to trough, starting to work its way back here. So there's still plenty of room to work your way higher. And what I would say is that you've gone through a protracted bear market here over the last seven to 18 months, depending on where you looked, whether it's the longer duration ARC and XBI side, which peaked January, February of last year, software in November, indexes in January. What I'm telling you is a lot of that narrative has played itself through the market. Now, it's playing itself through today in terms of semiconductors and the arc side of the tape, but this is not new information for the market, John. What I'm telling you is that if past is prologue, this is where you have been paid to buy technology for the last 12 years, and that is the hand that I'm going to play. All right, well, we like a strong call, Rich. We'll see if it uh, works out or not. Thanks for being with yeah. us. We'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Still to come, how should you think about Coinbase? I had a burning. Stay with us. Let's get a quick gut check on SoFi. SoftBank dumping 12 million shares over the past week in an attempt to cut cost. Shares are moving lower by nearly 8% this morning. That move coming after SoftBank's Vision Fund posted a more than $21 billion loss on the quarter, sending the company on the defensive to try and right the ship, or as Massasan said, heightened investment discipline. Uh, we'll be right back after this. Take a look at AppLovin and Unity shares. Unity now just above flat, AppLovin down 9.5%. Uh, this after AppLovin launched sort of a hostile bid for Unity. We've talked about so many of the dynamics at play at the beginning of the show. There's also 
a metaverse angle, both companies produce the type of immersive technology or data on an ecosystem that would be used in the, inter in the uh, metaverse, and they are at the forefront of gaming. Our Julia Borston joins us now with the next in her series on the metaverse, one celebrity who's transitioning into the new dimension. Julia? Well, John, Paris Hilton may have first become famous for her role on reality TV, and she's produced all sorts of content for platforms ranging from Peacock to YouTube. But now she is betting big that the next frontier of entertainment will be in the metaverse. Hey guys, it's Paris Hilton. Welcome to the Neon Carnival in Paris world, the hottest after party in the metaverse. Dubbed queen of the metaverse, Paris Hilton built her own world inside Roblox where her avatar DJs, headlining a Neon Carnival festival timed to Coachella and a virtual New Year's Eve party. I was playing and there was more people at Paris World than there was in New York at Times Square. Today, she's announcing her expansion into another metaverse platform, the Sandbox. Here, she'll sell Paris-inspired NFTs and host parties. Right now, we're mostly focusing on the experiences and not the monetization because that's just not the focus right now. But. We are gonna be doing digital wearables and working with different brands. She's bringing her real life apparel line into the metaverse by selling digital tracksuits, ultimately imagining ways to link virtual and physical items. We wanna be able to do where people could buy the tracksuit and then also get a digital version for their avatar to wear. Hilton says she started investing in crypto in 2016, long before crypto's meteoric rise and fall. She's been selling NFTs since last April. Before that market dropped, one sold for over $1 million. During peak interest in the metaverse last year, she invested in a number of startups in the space, including Bob Iger-backed Genies, which creates customized avatars. While Hilton continues to DJ in the real world, she sees new virtual worlds, including from Mark Zuckerberg's Meta, becoming the future of entertainment. Not everyone is able to go to Ibiza or go to Tomorrowland or go to these shows. It makes it accessible to so many people who aren't able to do that. Roblox tells us that Hilton's experience on its platform has been visited by 544,000 fans. Now, Paris Hilton's company does not share financials, but they do tell me that the media company is set to double its business from 21 to 2022 and is on track to generate tens of millions of dollars in annual profit. Now, Hilton did promote NFTs and crypto before those markets pulled back dramatically and, of course, is still uncertain how the tech giant's investment of billions of dollars in the metaverse will all play out. But, John D., tonight it's going to be so interesting to get those earnings from Roblox, so we'll see how overall spending in these worlds is reacting to inflation and whether consumers pull back there. Yeah, if it's anything like the gaming companies, um, it'll follow a similar trend. We will see that pullback, uh, but we'll keep an eye. Thank you, Julia. Meanwhile, uh, Nasdaq is down about one and one tenth of a percent, still underperforming the industrial average on the flat line. Tech Check is back in just a moment. One more thing before we go. That is Coinbase set to report after the market closed today. Kate Rooney has more on what to watch out for. A lot of stuff. It could be an ugly quarter. Yeah, that's the expectation. It's not looking good for Coinbase. And Wall Street is expecting a bad second quarter for Coinbase D. The question is, how bad is this going to be? Coinbase trading volumes are pretty much disclosed in real time. And as crypto prices crashed, 
JMP Securities estimates the volumes were down more than 30 percent in the quarter. Account growth is expected to be light thanks to those lower prices. Slower growth and trading activity is also technically and often a signal of lower transaction fee revenue, which tends to drive the bulk of Coinbase's bottom line. Investors will be looking closely at what they call the mix. That's the breakdown of retail versus the institutional side of the business. Retail tends to bring in higher fees. It's usually up to 2%, while the institutional side has lower fees. But it's getting a bit more attention lately after Coinbase announced that big partnership last week with BlackRock. Then the take rate. That's the spread Coinbase earns per transaction. The bear case has been that fees on the retail side for Coinbase will erode with competition. Coinbase has been one of the most shorted stocks in recent weeks, and there's fears around an SEC crackdown as well. The bull case, though, for Coinbase has been that company moving beyond trading and diversifying some of that revenue with things like staking or that NFT business. More cost-cutting guys would be seen as a positive for that stock. Back to you. All right. We will watch that. Of course, uh, Coinbase down quite a bit right now. We mentioned Unity at the top of the show. That stock is about flat. And Lemonade, the tech-driven insurance player, that's up 14%. We'll look at why. For now, let's get to Frank Holland and the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern.